Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's bring you our interview with J.P. Morgan CEO, Jamie Dimon. He sits down with Bloomberg's Ed Hammond. Let's go to that conversation right now. We're here in Miami. Jamie, great to be back. Great to be with you. Great to be standing. What are you worried about? Great, great to be here, by the way. So thank you. Uh, the, the thing I worry the most about, if you go, is Ukraine. It's oil, gas, so the leadership of the world and you know, our relationship with China. I mean, that, that is much more serious than the economic vibrations we all have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. On the Ukraine question that we talked about a lot, obviously, a year ago, very shortly after the war had started, do you think now, a year in, that the West has become sort of somewhat inured to the idea of a conflict of this scale on its borders? And if so, does that worry you? Yeah, no, it, it looks a little bit like people are inured to it, but I think that's a little bit of a mistake. You know, I read a report the other day that you know, when a war goes to one year, it lasts normally lasts 10. But this is a major land war in Europe, in a free and democratic nation, you know, with hundreds of thousands of casualties already on both sides. And so I think we this we don't know how this is going to end. We don't know what direction it's going to take. And, and it's affecting global relationships. So Ukraine, Russia, then it's oil, gas, food, uh, how it's hurting poor countries, uh, and it's roiling trade relations between America, China, and the rest of the world. So this is a probably the most serious geopolitical thing we've had to deal with since World War II. Do you foresee a future where J.P. Morgan could potentially re-enter the Russian market as a business? I mean, I'm very premature to say. You know, I think if there was a one day, maybe, but it's very possible that won't happen in our lifetime. And you mentioned U.S.-China relations, obviously not at their best right now, uh, particularly post the balloons. Um, I, I wonder what role you see business playing in trying to sort of moderate those relations and, and try and keep them as, as good as possible. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's really the government. The government has to set the rules and figure out what they want to do. And I think it's a fair complaint about government and business that we probably should have started resetting this 10 years ago. And we didn't. I don't like a choir with spilled milk and all that. But going forward, the government, and I think they're doing a good job thinking through what is national security. So think of semiconductors, rare earths, penicillin, you know, certain drugs. What's, what is unfair trade? And then, you know, at one point, sit down and have a very serious conversation with the Chinese government. You know, remember, Secretary Blinken was on his way over there to do that. And then the balloon. But at one point, they'll do that. And business is a peripheral player in that. So I think, I think business will help give advice on how to do things. If you're going to have an outbound investment controls, how do you set the way that works? That's not just a huge bureaucracy. And so, so far, all the conversations have been quite rational about it. I mean, J.P. Morgan obviously has a significant business in China. I'm sure that the government there would listen to you. What are the conversations you have just about sort of trying to, as I say, trying to maintain as cordial relations as possible between the two nations? 
I mean, you know, for us, we're there. And and like I said, you know, we're, we're, we're basically taking a backseat to an American government in this one. Uh, and we're going to, we obviously have to do whatever the American government asks us to do. And we're trying to engage in a conversation with our own government and with the Chinese government and what those things should be. You know, I'm hoping cooler heads prevail here. But th that, this is why Ukraine is so important. This can cause it to go in a bad direction rather quickly. So, uh, uh, you know, everyone's got to be just a little cautious. We can talk about our own government. Let's talk about the Fed for a moment. Obviously, uh, I, I just want to talk about the Fed for a moment. I have half a dozen prosaic questions I could ask you about the Fed. I think I know the answer to many of them, so I'll try and avoid. One fairly easy one is, you know, when do we get to say we're landing, be that a hard landing or a soft landing? Sort of when does that begin to occur? You know, forecasting the futures, as you know, are very complicated. It, the consumer still has a lot more money in their checking accounts than before COVID. They're spending 10% more than last year, 40% more than pre-COVID, and it looks like they'll have excess money to spend roughly until the end of the year. And at that point, you, know, you can say, is it a little bit of a cliff? Is it a soft landing? And also, QT has now started to bite. That also is going to happen at one point, probably later this year, and that, you know, that's when you're going to know what these things do. But you, we can still have a soft landing. And the other thing about all this economic forecasting is Russia-Ukraine. I mean, that, that can change it dramatically and very, very quickly. Do you think absent Russia-Ukraine, we will have a soft landing? I think it's still possible, but I would I look at possibilities. Ideal of, possible? Possible. I think a, a, a mild recession is possible, a harder recession is possible. I think there's a good chance that inflation will come down, but not enough by the fourth quarter. The Fed may, have, may actually have to do more. And I think a lot of things that have happened in the world, think of the bigger trends, are inflationary. You know, infrastructure spending, the IRA Act, uh, lessening trade with you know certain parts of the world, re, re, bringing trade back into America. Those, those things are all, uh, the, the green transition is going to take a lot of capital. So all those things kind of have inflationary attributes that are very different than we've been through the last 20 years. I'm going to come back to the consumer point in a second, but last year you talked about in your letter this sort of confluence of three major factors, QT, the America rebounding from a sort of post-COVID economy fairly strongly, and then obviously the war as well. You, you talked about them sort of leading us into an unprecedented period. How do we get out of that period? Uh, you know, it's, it's diplomacy. I mean, that, that's why this is not, you know, we always talk about uncertainty in the economy and the uncertainty. But I call it normal uncertainty. The weather's, you know, we know what the weather's like. That's why these things are different. QT, uh, coming out of COVID, uh, uh, the war in Ukraine. I think it's been pushed out a little bit further. I would have thought we'd be dealing with this a little bit sooner, but it does look like some of that stuff is coming to fruition at the end of this year. Russia, Ukraine, we just simply don't know. I, I think it's wrong to even predict because if you look at the history of wars, they, they've been pretty much unpredictable and how they uh, uh, play out and which ones affect the global economy and how they do. If you look at a lot of wars, they didn't affect the global economy, but they were literally in very small parts of the economy. This is not in a small part of the economy. And, the, and this is a European nation. Uh, it's Russia and it's oil and, you know, major oil and gas supply and food supply around the world. So this is a whole different uh, attribute to it. But then why does the consumer, particularly here in the U.S., remain, as you say, fairly bullish? They're, for over a period of time, their home price has been going up. Jobs are plentiful. Wages are going up to the lower end, which I think is a good thing. They've got a lot of money in their checking account. You know, uh, stocks generally been, had gone up for 10 or 15 years. The consumer is, if you look at it today, in great shape. But I'm telling you, that's going to end at one point. 
But even if we go into recession, then the consumer is entering a recession in better shape, far better shape than they did in 08. You know, in 08, when we went into that recession, not only did unemployment go through the roof, but their home prices were dropping dramatically, jobs were disappearing, uh, the stock market was way down. So this one is a little bit better than that. One of the sort of narratives that is fairly popular at the moment is that the consumer doesn't like uncertainty. I would even go as far as saying it's, it's, it's sort of one of these false axioms that, you know, that people adopt now, that you know, when it's, times are uncertain, the consumer freaks out, they stop spending, they stop doing the things that the consumer needs to do to keep the economy going. That doesn't seem to be the case here. The consumer's done pretty well through uncertainty, through COVID, through the war, through everything else. So I wonder, what, when we get to this point of you know, the wallet being hit and the consumer saying, we're going to stop spending, is it just reality catching up with them? Is there some kind of inflection point or is it just that they run out of money? Everything is distorted by COVID, including, quote, uncertainty. So you have, you are absolutely correct. You know, confidence, consumer confidence is dropping. But I think their pocketbook trumps confidence. When they have a lot of money, they tend to spend it. And, they, and you see here, like, look at the travel in Miami and the building and the optimism around. When you, if you ask them how they're doing, it's very good. And then they tell you they're, uh, they're not calm about the economy. So jobs are plentiful. Wages are going up. I mean, what? that's what's really affecting them. You know, when they wake up in the morning, they feel pretty good about that. And then they read the paper, and, of course, you can get a little depressed. And your view is that at the end of this year or towards the end of this year, that sort of begins to tail off? It, it, looks, that like, confidence. it looks like the excess cash will be disappearing. And then, uh, but the jobs are still there. So you could, that's why I said you could have a soft landing. So. Now, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, obviously, uh, his specter continues to haunt the global elite. And most recently, JP Morgan uh, have been sort of caught up in it. How has that made you feel? I can't talk about litigation, but you should you should know that at J.P. Moore, we got top experts, including some of the best people that come out of the DOJ, et cetera, who review and make judgment decisions like this. And we're, we've, they, they generally do a very good job. But how has it made you feel as the CEO of J.P. Morgan, as a figurehead for the bank? It's unfortunate, but it's life. Um, and look, we're here in Florida. We have to talk about politics because we always talk about politics. Obviously, we're in DeSantis' backyard. What do you make of his, uh, if you like, hands-on approach to business? And is that something you would like to see more of uh, in even higher office? Who's hands-on approach? DeSantis. Yeah. I, look, I, you know, I, I, I learn and listen and read and stuff like that. You know, it's got, it has got a little complicated between business and government and stuff like that. But, but you know, anyone here knows that I'm a full-throated, red-blooded, American patriot supporter of free enterprise. So, you know, I hear the complaints on both sides, but, you know, you listen and learn from that. I don't worry that much about it. And we've been, we've loved Florida. We're growing in Florida left and right. You know, small businesses, large companies. We got, I've got how many total employees we have here. I'm on my way to Tampa. We've got, you know, major operations there. Orlando, major operations. Uh, we're opening branches. And so uh, the mayor just joined us at a small business event we did here. We're very pro-Florida. Pro and this is long dated Florida. This isn't part of the sort of recent influx of capital into Florida or financial world into Florida, perhaps. Well, I think they've been great. I mean, you know, if you were running the state, you know, you should be thinking, how can I make the state off good, well off my people? So Florida likes business. They want you to come. You know, you come to Florida, you see the opt-in. Texas is the same way. You know, if, if I was some other states, I'd be thinking about why do people like going to these states? It's their taxes. It's their pro-business. They want better life for the people. It's not necessary some of the policy we talk about. So, um, you know, we now have more employees in Texas than in New York State. You know, it should have been that way, but 
Texas loves to be there. And when you go there, they're optimistic. They're optimistic here. Pro-American, optimistic, pro-business. No, unfortunately, no. Um, every year there's a, a sort of tech topic du jour that we talk about. Last year was the Metaverse, and I think we talked briefly about you appearing in a non-physical form in the lobby of the Metaverse. This year it's, uh, it's AI. Uh, I asked ChatGPT what I should ask Jamie Dimon. I was hoping he would come up with a really smart answer. I wouldn't need to write any of my questions. I could get it to do the whole interview for me. Uh, so, so it didn't, unfortunately. It asked, what would I ask Jamie Dimon uh, about AI and what it meant for the future of investment banking? So uh, AI is real. This is not... Not crypto? That's not crypto. This is a technology which is staggering. We already lose 300 AI. We have thousands of people involved, thousands involved in data, machine learning, natural language processing. We have 200 people in AI research labs. But, and we're already using it to do risk, fraud, marketing, prospecting, and it's the tip of the iceberg. So, you know, to me, this is, this is extraordinary. And the other thing to keep in mind, there's good use, but bad guys are going to use it too. So it's a little bit of an arms race in how you have to use it to protect your company, protect your clients, protect data, et cetera. And we're fully engaged. And the other thing you have to keep about AI, you need to be in the cloud to use the compute power, fundamentally, that you need for AI. And so that's why the cloud, digital AI, they're all kind of related that way. What was behind the decision to, to ban GPT on the, on the trading floor? On company-owned devices, that's way you could do it in your own device, but we also allow people to use it within our own uh, firewalls. So we didn't take it away, it just you have to go within our firewall to use it. And, and it was just for control purposes and risk purposes. There's no, wasn't a statement of any time. Before we end up, I, I want to get onto leverage finance. Obviously, that's in large part why we're here to talk about the conference. One of the things JP Morgan's doing at the moment that's very interesting is lending from its own balance sheet, direct lending, if you like. At, at the moment, I think it's $10 billion is what's been allocated. How big can that business get? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's amazing. And this is, when you look at something like this, the, for your viewers, American capitalism, there are 2,000 investors here from around the world. Hundreds of companies still inventing ideas and growing and expanding both in the U.S. and, and overseas. It is, it is extraordinary. So direct lending, you're obviously one of the biggest lenders out there, but a lot of people here are also huge lenders. So, you know, I meet with them all, and, and you know, direct lending away from banks has become equally in size. They and like to think of themselves as competitors. They're, they're, and they are. Right. You know, that's a lot. But we deal with competitors and collaborators all the time. So we do direct lending. And all it is fundamentally for your viewers, you know, Unitronch, quicker, more flexibility in certain types of covenants. Not necessarily cheaper for the borrower, by the way. So you got to look at it, all things. So we've done, I think, 10 billion, 40 deals. We can do a lot more. And, you know, we can work with partners on some of these deals, et cetera. But we'll do what we need to do to compete. It feels somewhat passe to ask you about succession. You get asked about it all the time. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but, I, but I am interested. You talk a lot about the need for sort of unified responses to global conflict. You talk a lot about things that are needed domestically, whether it's better health, better education, uh, raising wage inequality, uh, or reducing, I should say, wage inequality. It, it seems very obvious that you could go into public office if you chose to uh, when you leave JP Morgan. Is that something we can expect? I'm not going to go into public service. I love what I do here. You, know, you mentioned succession. But you I would enjoy it. I, I, I think you should practice it a little bit before you go into it. And I, I, mean, I, I feel what I do here is a huge contribution to, to my country, uh, my clients around the world, et cetera. So, uh, and the other thing about succession, you, got, you guys already know who, that we have a lot of potential successors. 
So you, you can answer, write about it frequently. Exactly. So, you know, I couldn't add to that. You already know. All right. So. Jamie Dimon, great conversation. Thanks great. so much for having us. And with that, I'll turn it back to you in New York. That was Ed Hammond, uh, along with CEO and chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, covered a lot of topics. Yeah. For uh, me, uh, the most interesting thing he said by far was that the U.S. consumer is spending 10% more this year than he did last year and 40% more this year than pre-pandemic. Stimmy checks, stimulus, savings, I guess that's what's driving it. But it's gonna run out. It's he said that out. excess cash that the consumer has is gonna last through the end of this year. Yep, very interesting. So great interview there, Ed Hammond, Bloomberg Television, along with uh, Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan Chase at their Leverage Finance and High Yield Conference down in Miami. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.